Hello and welcome to Serious Vintage. I'm Jeff Mose. I'm Nat Mose. And I'm Josh Chappell. Today, we're going to be talking about the Team Serious Invitational, as well as a look forward at Vintage in the New Year. We actually have a, a special guest today. We've got Paul Kim, who's the owner of, or one of the owners of Eternal Games in Warren, Michigan. He was also one of the players in the Team Serious Holiday Invitational. So, yeah, we, we thought we'd bring him in to sort of talk a little bit about the Invitational and give us a little bit of a store owner perspective on Vintage. So hey guys, thanks for being here, Paul. Good. Thanks, thanks, for, um, thanks for coming. Oh, yeah, no problem. Our pleasure. Paul was kind enough to provide several dual lands and fetch lands for the prize at the Team Serious Invitational. Actually, Jeff was the host of that, so I'm going to let him talk about it. So we had the Invitational. What day was the Invitational? December 7th or something? December 6th. December 6th, yeah. So we had a, a Saturday tournament at my house. We had... 15 other people come out. We were aiming for 20, but only got 15, and that meant I had to play to make 16. Overall, it went pretty well. I was, and this sort of comes into what Nat was saying, I think the most stressful thing about putting it together was lining up prize support. We were initially expecting that we would have some team members that had some things that they would like to, you know, sort of sell, which would, which yeah. would, would, would make for easy prize support. But then when it actually came down to it, people weren't really offering things up. So, uh, Paul really came through and saved my bacon as far as providing prize support. And I was pretty amped that we could get good, easy prize support as well as supporting him in his store. So I think that it really worked out for everyone involved. So thanks, Paul. And I should, I should point out that we sort of put this tournament together, when you sort of put this tournament together in a hurry. I mean, we were really, I mean, what do we have, three weeks that we were <laughs> yeah. working with? Three yeah, I just like signed into the chat one day and, and you were like, hey, Jeff, we should do a Team Serious Invitational on the 6th. And I was like, okay. <laughs> well, it was yeah. harder for me because my Cessna was in the shop, so I couldn't get a reasonably priced plane ticket. That's rough. Went really well once everyone was there. Like, you had plenty of space. There was had the between meal or between round meals catered. Uh, I mean, yeah. Which I mean, I guess was largely in credit to your wife, who went out and picked up food for us and managed a lot of the ordering. Yeah, the, the yeah, I mean, worked out really well. We had Jimmy John's sandwiches for lunch, which we broke for between round one and two. And then we had Chipotle for dinner, which was after, I think, the last round of Swiss. Or there may have been between the fourth and the fifth round with some people who didn't have time and then ate after the fifth round. And that was actually pretty easy. We just passed out some little order forms in the first yeah. round and picked those up. So everyone got the burrito that they wanted and then... Like you said, my wife went out and picked him up. I was originally thinking that I would be able to do some of that, but especially because I had to play, I think even if I didn't have to play, right. I was still running all over the place trying to manage the tournament that I would not have had the time to make the trek out and pick up the food. Right. To your credit, you did a lot of <laughs> a lot of good management there on site and got the video stream set up and stuff like that. Like you were <laughs> you were busy between rounds, even if you weren't. Yeah, I, I was. I was pretty excited to get the whatever you were doing. I was pretty excited to get the video set up. That's something, yeah. I mean, we've been talking about getting a Team Serious video rig for quite a while now, and I think that right. this 
was sort of a good trial run. We don't necessarily have all the infrastructure set up yet, but I think that we learned a lot about getting it set up, getting a good stream going. I think we have lessons learned for next time. Well, I think your video quality is really good because I went back and watched a bunch of the replays today. And I know that the night before the tournament, Nat texted me and asked if I wanted to commentate. I mean, I was in the middle of a gin and tonic drinking contest, so I was all about it. And then the next day, I was like feeling a little more rough, and it didn't work out. It was probably for the best. Maybe with a little more planning in the future, I think, you know, like you said, lessons learned. Yeah, I I think that we, we cut that off because we thought that the audio stream was affecting the bandwidth. It turned out that our video feed was just running too high of quality to the point where it wasn't actually like we we, we were running too high and we weren't actually getting anything out of that quality because the webcam wasn't picking up a sharp enough image. So once we turned it down, everything was fine. And I'm pretty sure that if we try this again, we could definitely set up a system where we stream direct to you or someone else who is doing audio commentary. And then the person who is doing audio commentary is the one who actually does the, the Twitch stream so we don't have to do download and upload we just uh upload and then you download and upload so i think that that should work yeah all the all the video rounds are on youtube we'll put the links in the article that accompanies the podcast so you'll be able to to see those and you know i think actually i went through and watched a lot of them and the only problem i had was was the audio which i ended up turning off just because it was distracting to hear pretty much everyone except the two people playing the game. Yeah. Because I did that too, and I, because I, I left it on most of the time to try and pick up on, like, the little life changes. And most of the games, like, because there wasn't a running yeah. tally of life totals, but I think most of the matches, it didn't really matter. Like, if you knew the <laughs> format is pretty clear who was winning or losing and what was going to happen. <laughs> and I think on almost every single one, the only right. person you're talking was Jimmy. Yep, that's Jimmy. <laughs> Yes. That's another, I mean, one of the lessons learned, I think. And and the best part is that Jimmy just got louder after the tournament. (laughs) That's what booze does to Jimmy. (laughs) I think that one of the lessons learned there was that we should probably think more about the audio and where we actually put the mic, whether we put a separate mic out rather than just using the webcam mic, and also probably put the feature match table in a separate room. As it was, we put it right in the middle of the large room that we were using for the tournament, and that picked up everything. So Yeah, I think Paul right. can flip two Force of Wills to Dark Confidants. Yeah. Someone did? Yep. That yeah. was true. <laughs> I, I heard that in the background of one of the recorded matches. <laughs> I was basically crushing game one because Ben had kept a very suspect hand, and I went to solve my triggers, and I hit one force of will, followed by another, and I was dead to my own confidants in two turns. Wow. (laughs) Forced me to play very riskily. I could hear myself the moment that I cast Memory Jar under Notion Thief and drew 14 cards to Sam Zero. (laughs) So, Jeff and Paul, what did you play? What did you think about the environment and the tournament and the decks that you played? I played a watered-down version of Brian DeMar's Steel City Vault 2.0. I was sort of throwing the deck together because I wasn't expecting to play. We had a last-minute cancellation. We originally had 16 people coming, but then we had a last-minute cancellation that put it down to 15, so I had to sort of throw things together at the last minute. Right. And I did not have a couple of the key components, Most probably most importantly being the Mox Opals, so I was just like, this is fine. I'll just use a fetch base and use Gushes instead of Thoughtcasts. 
and it was not fine. Was this a proxy tournament? It, no. it was a proxy tournament, but I didn't actually like. <clears throat> if I had thrown together proxies, my proxies would have looked like Jimmy's proxies, and that would have been no good. So yeah, at least I, I avoided watching that. Watching these matches, I didn't know what any of these cards were. Yeah, that's exactly right. So I basically took that Steel City Vault list, made it a lot worse, and added Notion Thieves. And I did get to blow Sam out with the Memory Jar under Notion Thief once, but that never happened again. I usually ended up about one mana short in most of my matches, which the Mox Opals would have helped with. I actually I tinked around with the deck a little bit more and took it to a tournament yesterday at Paul's store in, in Warren, Michigan. In a field of 16, I think I took third after Swiss or something, and there was a lot of drawing 14 cards and mind-twisting my opponent down to nothing, so it worked out pretty well. <laughs> Did you guys play out the top eight? No. When we got to top eight, we had five people that wanted to split and two people that didn't care, so we split. <laughs> That's only seven people. <laughs> One person did wanted to play, but he was overruled. No, I was the eighth. But <laughs> everyone had decided. Oh. Uh, I figured it was a closed. Oh, I see. Well, then CJ deal. lied to me. He told me that one person wanted to play, but I guess not. Um, well, what did you play, Paul? At the, uh, the, the Invitational and the, your store's tournament. I played the same deck at both. Blue, white, black, like a Bomberman-style deck with Dark Confidant. Okay. Uh, it was pretty good. Uh, it has a really good combo matchup most of the time, but I noticed yesterday huh. if they play a lot of counter magic, it's tough to beat early on a dangerous threat with counter magic to back it up. Because a lot of times I was losing to, they'd cast something like both, I'd counter, they'd counter back, and if I didn't have a second counter, I didn't really have another way to interact. I see. We played against each other, I think, in round two at the Invitational, and we had a sort of a funny moment where Paul started comboing out. So he had Salvagers, Lotus, and what was your Spellbomb? I think you were playing Niall's Spellbomb? Yes. And you started going through the combo, and, get, and I was like, yeah, yeah, now you have infinite mana. And then you went to, to use the Spellbomb, and I flashed in a Notion Thief. And you countered it, and when I told the story to other people, they were like, oh, well, he should have just let it resolved, and then made you draw 61 cards and die. Yeah, but I don't know how many cards you have in your deck compared to mine. I guess I could have counted. <laughs> but I was probably drawing more than you, because you hadn't resolved any draw sevens, and I had confidence, so... Yeah, yeah. Probably wouldn't have ended up... Well, I don't know. I mean, I guess I could just let you draw them and... I, I think you had that game pretty well in hand regardless, but it was just kind of a funny moment. Yeah. yeah. Well, I thought you had some strange interaction that I <laughs> yeah, wasn't thinking about. Yeah, because I wasn't scooping, because I was just looking on, just bored as you obviously went into your combo, and I was just like, yeah, yeah, you play Salvagers. Yeah, all the mana. <laughs> the whole event... You, you were going to trick behind his Salvagers. Oh, it would have been insane. Well, I didn't expect Notion Thief, and uh, yesterday, every time I looked over, he also had a Notion Thief. Oh, so, man. Uh, yeah, I was playing three of them at the Invitation, and I, I, I upped it to four, because the way I'm playing the deck now, I mean, all I want to do, I can either just draw seven into Time Vault and Key, or more often, I'm just end-of-turn Notion Thiefing, and then the next turn, I'll play a draw seven, and the game is over. You play Notion Thief like Cheaty Face? Yes, it works That's so well. So, so Jeff, we were talking about your deck a little bit last night. You said that all you wanted to do was mind twist people and draw seven? Yeah. Or draw 14, rather. Yeah. What I was thinking about is you, you said that Dax seemed like the weakest part. Did you, yeah. Were you playing mind twist, and did you have balance? 
No mind twist, no balance. I'm actually, even though I'm using the five color mana base, I'm strictly three color. It's blue, red, black. <laughs> I probably could go fetches yeah. if I wanted to, but the rainbow lands combined it's, with Seed of the Synod, like Seed of the Synod is really important. It's often a critical part of making Metalcraft happen turn one, and I just don't want to give that up. Yeah. But yeah, I mean... Like like I said, Dak feels like the weakest part of the deck because, strangely, drawing two and making your opponent discard two actually feels kind of weak when it's just so easy to make your opponent discard his entire hand and then draw 14. Yeah. So I also wanted to clarify this. You're using Dak's ability on your turn, right? So does your opponent still draw one and you draw one? No. I don't know how well, he would draw the first card, and then you would draw the rest, right? I don't think the wording on Notion Thief says that it's the first card that they would draw during their turn. Yeah, if uh, an opponent would draw a card except the first one, he or she draws in each of his or her draw steps. Okay. Oh, interesting. Huh. Well, that's neat. Yeah, it's pretty good. Like, yeah. even, and that's the thing, is that I have brewed up a lot of bad decks that utilize combos where one piece or the other is really bad on its own. And Notion Thief, what I'm trying to say is Notion Thief is actually really good just on his own. Like, you can really blow people out Notion Thiefing Jace, Notion Thiefing Brainstorm. Honestly, even Notion Thieving small things like Ponder or Preordain is pretty good. Yeah, Notion Thief. Good in a format where people draw lots of cards. Exactly. <laughs> the I mean, saddest thing right now is that Dig Through Time avoids him, and Dig Through Time is getting really popular. But, I mean, on Treasure Cruise, yeah. blowout. Yeah. Well, Notion Thief doesn't give you yeah, any Pyromancer's <laughs> Ascension counters either. Say again? Notion Thief doesn't give you any Pyromancer's <laughs> counter. That's true. That's That's the cost we all have to pay. Right. I played the, the Dig Through Time Gush deck at the Invitational and won. Could you tell us a little bit about the deck and how it works then? What I found is that people haven't really picked up Dig Through Time as a four of yet, which is like the first thing I wanted to do because <laughs> they're nuts. And I'm surprised that people are still playing it as like a two of, a three of. Do you think that that's because but, they're playing more treasure crews than they should, and they just don't feel like they can support well, that many Delve cards? No, I, I think treasure crews is great in a deck like Delver, where more of your cards are on a similar power level. I mean, like if you draw, you know, a Delver and a Flusterstorm with your treasure crews, or you know, Delver. Uh, Delver, a Flusterstorm, and some other random counter, like, they're all pretty much the same. It's not like you're going to blow anyone out with those. You're just trying to marry them. And with Take Through Time, you're cherry-picking the best of seven cards. In a vintage deck that's using vintage power-level cards, getting the two best cards out of seven is just far and away better than getting three random cards. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when I watched the replays, every time that you cast Dig Through Time, it was ridiculous. I mean, most of the time you were like, you would draw six right. cards, look at them, and be pretty happy, and count them, and be like, oh man, and draw another one. <laughs> I've been thinking, like, if I were to put together a Delver deck right now, I would probably play four Treasure Crews and a Dig Through Time. How would you uh, fuel the graveyard for all of that? For one, I don't have any fear that that would be too many delve spells. For two, I think that would just be really good. Like, I think the time would be good there, too. <laughs> Obviously, my, my game plan in most of my matches was just to resolve gushes and dig through times and improve my card quality and quantity over my opponent. So that seemed to work out okay. <laughs> So let's shift over a little bit and talk about Jimmy's deck. Yeah. What, why were you I'm able... I'm excited about Jimmy's deck. 
I, I'm specifically curious on why you were able to beat Jimmy and nobody else was. Was it something about your deck that was just better against what he well, was doing? For one, I think having gushes is, at least puts me on par with him, and I don't know I don't know exactly who else he played or what they were playing. But I, you know, I think gushes certainly helps that matchup. But I think the other thing is that when we were sitting down to play. Jimmy was kind enough to just tell me how to beat him, which was just to race him. <laughs> and so pretty much that's what I did. Like, I didn't play control against his deck anyway. Like, obviously, I'm going to count a Pyromancer or whatever. But I think in game two, that was the one where I stormed up a bunch, drew a bunch of cards, and wasn't able to finish him even though I had Tendril in my hand because yeah, I couldn't find a second black man. I think you drew, like, I don't know, 10 or 12 cards. I'm assuming looking for Lotus because that would have let you win the game. Yeah, well was watching on stream said that I had drawn a, a fetch land with five life left. So it would have been I I drew a fetch land with five life and the Imperial Tutor in my hand. So it would have been one mana to play the fetch land, one mana to crack the fetch land. But sorry, those are all life too. One life to play the fetch land, one life to crack the fetch land, two life to play the Imperial Tutor for Black Lotus, draw into Black Lotus and cast tendrils. I don't know if that's true. I haven't watched through the match again, but my thinking was that by the time I drew the fetch land, I was too low on life to actually make that play. But, well, that's interesting because I, I watched that today, and I saw you had Vampire Tutor, but uh -huh. I didn't know what your life was. I assumed that like right. you were too low to use it, which right. which you didn't. I mean, that was I was keeping track of life, and it, you know, I needed at least with the fetch land play. Obviously, I needed at least four life to that, and I don't think I had it at that time. In talking to Jimmy, as he got very boisterous and excited, he was saying that basically, I don't know, some people might not know how the Jeskai Ascendancy deck works. I certainly didn't until I got the brief explanation on it. Jeskai Ascendancy is an enchantment that costs, what, black, red? No, no, no. White, red, blue. White, yeah. red, blue. And whenever you play a, what is it, creature spell, then all of your creatures get... creature spell. Whenever yeah, you play a non... Jeff, <laughs> read the card. Keep going, Jeff. Keep going. <laughs> All right, does someone else want to explain the Jeskai Ascendancy deck? Go right ahead. I have no idea how it works, so... <laughs> All right, let me look up Jeskai Ascendancy so I can actually know what I'm talking about. Welcome to Vintage. Yeah, well, I, I, so I, when I was watching the matches, he, this was like, oh, Workshops is bad for the deck, Workshops is bad for the deck, and then Jimmy played against Nam, who was playing and in I think it was game one. I'm like, oh, this game's lost. Like he can't win this game. And then well, you know, somehow he won that game. And I was I, like, through two spears. Yeah. Yep. You know, I don't think that the workshop matchup is that bad because I mean the combo does let you you can make mana within the combo. And the other thing is like you're drawing a bunch of cards, so you're gonna find counters and removal. Like yeah. I, I think it's that's what you have to do is get things set up early and then just hope you can counter well, and pyromancer yeah. your way out of the game. Delver can align itself real well against workshops just because you have a turn one creature and a lot of times workshops can just have a lot of block pieces. So you right. could just resolve a Delver and swing and kill them or at least right. get close so a bolt can finish him off. Right. The critical part of how he won was, was basically because he was able to avoid those spheres and start generating mana. Right. So, well, as we were talking about, Jeskai Ascendancy, whenever you cast a non-creature spell, all your creatures get plus one, plus one until end of turn. You untap them, and you also get to draw a card and then discard a card. 
So this combos really, really effectively with Young Pyromancer because you get dudes who all get pumped. But more importantly, the real combo is with Fate Stitcher, who unearths for just the blue, which avoids spheres. And then Fate Stitcher can tap to untap another permanent. So what you do is you unearth a bunch of Fate Stitchers, and when you cast spells, you're drawing through your deck, and you're, like, getting rid of lands and stuff and getting cheap cantrip spells. And then Fate Stitchers untap, and then you tap your Fate Stitchers to untap your lands so you can continue getting mana to go through your combo. In the game that I watched, the Fate Stitchers were huge. I think he, Jimmy had right. two or three, and he was able to win through two spheres with the right. Fate Stitchers. Yeah, he's just then, he's uh, just making so much mana through those Fate and, Stitchers that it's And, it's and Fate Stitchers aren't affected by spheres and claim from the graveyard. Yeah. The, the unearthed ability, so... And then Gush is huge in that deck, too, because you're going off and you're just like, I guess I'll pick up these crappy lands and loot them through the Jeskai Ascendancy draw discard. Right, yeah, I'm, I'm expecting to see this deck more in Vintage. Yeah, he, he said that the times that he lost, like you said, it takes a little bit of time to get Ascendancy out there because it costs three and they're all colored mana symbols. And if he, if someone just like early Time Vault keyed him or just killed him outright, there wasn't much he could do about it. But once he got past like turn three or four, he just did not lose. Right. So maybe it should have a, a little bit more of a controlling element, at least to uh, make it through the first few turns. Yeah, because, I mean, he had some counter spells, and then he had some, like, spot removal and swords and stuff like that. But, yeah, I mean, I'm sure there's something you can do to make those first few turns, you know, allow huh. you to make turn four or five. Yeah, well, for one, he had an ancient grudge that he couldn't flash back, which is kind of interesting. <laughs> uh, well, no, he, he did have a Mox Emerald, I will have you know. Uh-oh. And a Black Lotus. And a Black Lotus. Yeah, uh, he, could not, he could not flash that back. So. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, I, like, I, like I said, I, I think that deck... Could show up, especially because I think it has a really good Delver matchup, and apparently Delver is everywhere online. I don't know if you guys have seen the yeah, because um, they just did that um that report yeah the reports from that vintage holiday yep. open online was just ridiculously filled with Delver. <laughs> oh, he wasn't playing Delver in his deck. I don't think he was. I think he had the ascendancies over Delver. Did he? Let's find out. I don't think I ever saw him play Delver. He oh, played. Yeah. A young Pyromancer that I thought was like a goblin welder he paid two mana for. I didn't I didn't know what the heck the card was because it wasn't real. And then like proxy Gataxian probes and He did not have any doubles. With Fairy Conclave or Fate Stitcher and Jeskai Ascendancy, and then he just has Young Pyromancer to kill him with. Right. Yeah, because I mean even with Fate Stitcher in play, you're giving that plus one plus one every time you want to have, so Well, it also works with Fairy Conclaves. Right. Yeah, same thing. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, people were pretty excited when they found out about the Fate Stitcher, right? <laughs> or it's not the Fate Stitcher, the um, Fairy Conclave. Yeah. Like, oh man, that card's awesome. Yeah. Um, he was describing it as a port of Rich Shea's Legacy deck. He just yeah. switched out cards that were restricted or uh, were obviously not on par. And I was reading a little bit of what Rich Shea said about it. Uh-huh. And he calls it a control combo deck where you kind of control the game until you get a critical mass. I guess maybe turn three is critical mass. And then you just go off. Right. Yeah, it seems, yeah, seems really reasonable. Yeah. His uh, control elements, though, are mostly removal spells, it looks like. Like Rich Shea's deck, I'm looking at his Legacy deck. So if he switched that yeah. to something more applicable in Vintage, maybe he could keep that same concept. I mean, you only have to swap out a couple cards. I mean, you lose three Brainstorms. So yeah, yeah, you get to add Gushes. 
Yeah. That's actually one of the decks that I would add a dig through time to because he's got four treasure crews, right? Yeah, yeah. I would I would throw a dig through time in there and <laughs> be psyched about it. Dig through time in everything. I mean, that's my aim in vintage right now. So. <laughs> well, it worked out for you, so yeah, yeah, it has worked out for me a couple times now. Yeah. And for anyone who's thinking about it, they should probably buy Jeskai Ascendancies now before Vintage drives the price up. Vintage doesn't drive any price. That's the joke. <laughs> well, it's it actually very popular and standard good. right now. Yeah, I'm actually it's into a, an aggro deck. So. I'm actually really surprised that's only two dollars still, because I know that I've been hearing that this has been pretty good in, in a lot of other formats. Well, it was like it was when it first came out. Everyone was going crazy about it in modern, but like I don't, it hasn't really turned into anything. What's it doing in Standard, Paul? They're, they're using it in Nagra? Well, it started out as a combo deck in Standard, but then I guess it couldn't really compete with probably the Jeskai deck. There's a Jeskai deck that was playing, like, Seeker of the Way and Mantis Rider. So if oh, you okay. would kill their creatures, like, Jeskai Ascendancy probably doesn't do enough. But mm-hmm. then they turned it into a, an aggro deck, and oh, I guess it's... It's all over the place now. They just play creatures with removal when it untaps their creatures. And... Well, they play a card called, like, uh, Hordling Outburst, and it puts three oh, okay. into play. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then since it's a non-creature spell, you know. Yeah. Oh. I get it. Yeah, so I, I don't know anything about Standard, but there's a Grand Prix in Denver in a couple weeks, and I'm already pre-registered for it, so. Neat! What do you, you wait, might want to consider you... playing Jeskai Ascendancy. Uh, I'm actually going to play Blue White Heroic because the entire deck cost me like $30. <laughs> I like that vintage players almost always play like the cheapest deck in the other formats. Well, they no, know that they're going to play it once and then throw it away. Sometimes and it actually seems really interesting. Yeah. Although it has mostly to do with the combat step, and I don't know anything about that, but I basically <laughs> consider it like I'm paying $30 to learn $30 worth of information about the combat step, sure. and that's worth it to me. Uh, well, you're also uh, getting like a playmat that's probably going to be like 50 to 80 bucks too. Oh, and the Gristle brand. Yeah, I get the Gristle Yeah, the Gristle brand too. <laughs> I was asking Jerry a question about combat yesterday. I was like, so, Jerry, if I, if I block something with Metalworker, and then weld it out. Is the thing still blocked? He's like, Jeff, this is Combat 101. I'm like, I'm a vintage player. I don't know. <laughs> the answer is yes, it remains blocked. <laughs> I didn't want to ask, but I'm glad you told me. Because <laughs> I got used to, I mean, I'm an old school person, so I would always, like, you know, do all those tricks with combat damage on the stack. But you can't do that anymore, and that's what makes it confusing. Yeah, I played against someone at the at the cons pre-release that hadn't played Magic in a while, and he attacked me, and he goes, damage on the stack. I'm like, it doesn't work that way anymore, man. It's like, let, let's call a judge and get this talked about. You just ruined his entire Magic career because damage yeah. on the stack. Yeah. Oh, so many fun tricks. That was pretty sad when they removed damage from the stack. Yeah. Yeah. No more Mog Fantastic. Did you drink anything neat over the weekend, Nat? At your house? At my house, yeah. I mean, we have a section for food and drink, and we talked about food a little oh, bit. Oh, right. Uh, yeah, well, I guess we did mention the food. The, I think the one interesting drink that I made myself was root beer, vanilla vodka, and Bailey's. Really? Yeah, which, so I was going for, you know, the, the root beer float effect. Yeah, and, you just, you just decided to make it up. it worked really well. Oh, so, neat. Um, I guess I made that one up on the fly. It was good. It was real sweet, but it was good. 
Cool. And other than that, all of my rounds were three games long, and I didn't have time to do anything. So I, I don't recommend playing three game matches if you want to like hang out and talk to people at a tournament. <laughs> should have played uh, Belcher. I should have played Belcher. I had it with me too. Did we have? Was anyone playing Belcher? No, I don't think, Randall wasn't playing Belcher, so no. Yeah, I, I mean at well, the at he yeah, wouldn't. yeah, that's true. Randall, Ben, and uh, Sam were not playing Belgium. Yeah, at the last Invitational, we had there what? Like three. <laughs> yeah, I think I think at least three. Yeah, what was? And there were a couple of uh, Burning Oath players too. Mm-hmm. Did anyone fall over at this Invitational? Uh, let's let's not talk about that. <laughs> it, it it can only go places where we don't really want to go. I hope that's it, yeah. So, let's talk about vintage in 2015. Yeah. Well, actually, I'd, I'd like to I'd like to talk a little bit more to Paul because I, I think we got his comments before we started recording about the perspective of a store owner toward vintage, especially with regard to proxies and people buying cards. As a store owner, I encourage proxies because they make the game more accessible. If you limit it too much, which I think we're at right now easily, you just wouldn't have players. Like, we wouldn't have a single vintage player outside of, like, three guys. So, like, you can't can't maintain a scene with three guys. And so so you get a lot of people taking advantage of the proxies at tournaments then, too, right? Oh, yeah. Some of them have, like, whole proxy decks. But it's not bad because the guys that proxy their whole deck, they'll print it all out in color. Yeah. So it's not confusing or anything. My problem with proxies are when... Jimmy's people, proxies. <laughs> yeah, like, it's not clear. And yeah. you get into these confusing situations where if you had just printed a piece of paper out, could have avoided right. it. Well, and part of it, too, is, like, vintage tournament environments are usually pretty casual. So there's a lot of... If someone plays a proxy that you don't really know what it does... I mean, like, if, if Jimmy had played Jeskai Ascendancy at a, you know, tournament not at Jeff's house... I say, I don't know what that does, and he tells me, like, I would probably believe that, regardless of what he told me, and, you know, I wouldn't necessarily confirm it. I mean, I think that's just, you know, proxies should be clear and have complete text and things like that, if at all possible. Yeah, I agree. So that's interesting, and and what do you, um, I mean, do you get, do you get people in the store who know about vintage, who are asking about vintage? I mean, obviously... I mean, Michigan, that part of Michigan has been a, a vintage area for a while. I mean, you had RIW and DeMars is up there and Ben Perry is there and, you know, have other players. But, I mean, you know, do you have walk-ins who are curious about it? Rarely. Yeah. But, again, I think it's an accessibility issue since people don't think they can afford power or duels or things like that. Then they never think that they can actually play the game, so they don't really bring it up. I think I, there would be because when you make it easy to play, it's an exciting format. And people oh, like yeah. Legacy. Legacy is another exciting format. It's far more accessible and there's a far larger player base. So I think as long as you make it accessible, the format can sell itself. But right. yeah, I, I know that my round 
how many rounds did we play yesterday? My last round opponent, who was at the second table, so he was doing real well. This was his first vintage tournament, and he was just really excited to play the format. He said all kinds of fun things were going on. And, I mean, <laughs> he had, like, some really foily pimped out cards and then a bunch of proxies because he was mainly an EDH player. And he's like, hey, I oh, can yeah. use all of these cards from my EDH piles in vintage, and this is a great time. So yeah. he was super psyched, and it was great fun to play against him. Yeah, I think there's an increasing amount of crossover between formats. I mean, like we were just talking about the Jeskai Ascendancy deck, obviously being in, be having a similar version in Legacy and Modern, and I mean, apparently they use at least the enchantment in Standard. So, I mean, I think they're, we're getting to where people are seeing that their cards are played in Vintage as well as elsewhere and looking to see what else they can get into. Paul, do you have like a, a regular vintage night or do you just have the tournaments, you know, once every month or two months or whatever? Yeah, we just have it bi-monthly. Okay. We could probably get a weekly thing going with like three to four players. Yeah. But if anything ever happens, like if they have a work commitment or a family commitment or something right. like that that's unavoidable, you know, it starts to wear down on the small group that does show up because right. they might not assume that it's happening the next week and then someone else doesn't show up and then the group just kind of falls apart. So really you want to kind of have a base of at least eight players. So even if it's an event doesn't fire, you can still have something you can play, like six-man tournament or whatever. Right. Yeah, that's that's sort of what we run into in, in Columbus. I mean, we've been playing every Monday night for uh, a year and a half, two years now, maybe longer. Longer, probably. And, uh, I mean, we have two or three or four people who are regulars and then another two or three people who will show up periodically and then a few people who will show up once every couple months or something like that. It's sort of a random mix of who shows up and whether we get, you know, two people or five or eight, you know. I know there was, there was a couple week couple weeks uh, towards the end of the summer where we got eight people two weeks in a row because there was a group that came over from Dayton um, who were just hardcore psyched about vintage. and <laughs> We haven't seen them since, I think just because they're students. But I, I know that it's always hard getting a regular group of that size together, of, of you know, small tournament size, basically. Well, you do a good thing in Columbus where you guys have, like, several proxy decks ready to go, too. Yeah, I right. think that's a large contributing fact. Like, actually, now that I mention it, like, that wouldn't be a bad thing if we wanted to get, like, a weekly vintage thing going. Yeah. We could proxy several decks and <laughs> uh, advertise it, and people might show up. Right. You know, we have a couple of chops decks and a couple of control decks and a couple of aggro control decks and a combo deck and a drag deck. You know, we try and try and make it so that, you know, you can sort of find something you're comfortable with if you're willing to sit down and play a couple of games. Right. Um, and that, that has been helpful. And there have been there have been people who have sort of walk ins who have tried that out and really enjoyed it. Unfortunately they haven't made it back for additional time, but that's all right. So that was actually one of the things I wanted to propose at this uh, in this show is the idea of Monday Night Vintage as being a sort of you know wider idea of vintage playability. I mean, having multiple stores across the country have Monday Night Vintage that would be anyone could sort of go online and say if I'm going to this city and I'll be there on Monday night, where can I play vintage? Yeah, maybe the Monday restriction. Nah, I don't really care what day it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it would have to be flexible. Yeah, like, I know, I know. <laughs> vintage week, you know. Well, I think, yeah, I know that, I mean, I've 
I'm only proposing Mondays just because obviously we do that in Columbus. And I know that there's a store in Minneapolis, Monster Den, that does it on Monday nights too. They have a, a I think they have a proxy event on Mondays that has been doing okay. I but, can uh, I can easily see why Monday works because I know that like after I play in a tournament. Usually the first thing I want to do when I get home is play more vintage. Play more, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so Monday rolls around. It's like, so what I'm going to do this evening, man, I'd really like to play some vintage. I want to play some vintage. <laughs> yeah. I mean, obviously, you know, you don't want to conflict with – well, maybe you do. But, uh, you know, you don't normally want to conflict with my Friday Night Magic because that's when they're, they're going to be playing tournament formats and things like that. I don't know. It's – like I said, the day really doesn't matter. I don't care, but <laughs> I, I think it would be nice to have that sort of just saying Monday Night Vintage is sort of a standard that you know you can go anywhere and find a shop and sit down for some vintage games if you want to. Yeah, I, I need to play more vintage. That's for sure. I'm I'm much better at watching Magic than I am at playing Magic anymore. And I think I I felt that watching the the videos from the Invitational. I'm like, man, I know exactly what to do, and I usually <laughs> feel that way. And then when I'm sitting in that seat. I feel like I'm uh, no. drunk driving, or like not. Driving, <laughs> when I when I'm drinking, I prefer to ride a bike, so I feel like I'm riding a bicycle drunk. But it's, I, was, I was hoping you were thinking that, man, I know exactly what to do, and then the person on the video does the exact opposite and ends up winning <laughs> the game because of it. I mean, that's that's the the Jeopardy effect. Like it's yeah. so easy to watch something when there's no pressure and just have that intuitive response but uh in the moment man everything can go wrong jerry was just yesterday was just giving me hell because i was just playing (laughs) terribly like i would draw 14 cards and immediately i would have so many things to do that i could do none of them properly (laughs) it was really bad there were a bunch of games where it's just like my deck is so obscenely powerful that I can play terribly and still win because once I've drawn 14 cards, yeah, right. What can I, go wrong? I can stumble in there and and still win, as embarrassing as it's going to be in the process of getting there. Magic is hard. You know, it really, it really is hard. I mean, like, there's a, there's a lot of times where I think we take it for granted that the choices that we're making, as far as a game goes, are difficult. <laughs> Maybe that's why uh, drinking and vintage go hand in hand so well. Because we don't think anymore when we drink? No, because you're so stressed out from playing vintage that you need a, a relaxer. Hmm. <laughs> well, I know Randall always says that he plays Belcher better when he drinks. I can easily see playing Belcher better when you drink because that's a it's really a gung-ho deck. you got to have yeah. no fear. Yeah, you just have to throw stuff out there see what yeah. happens. Yeah. talking about your 2015 vintage predictions yeah do we have predictions do we have predictions for vintage in 2015 all right how about how about this i'll break it down do we have anything that's going to get restricted i don't like to play this game because i'm never right or it's irrelevant because you have it no doesn't control matter. Over it. it doesn't matter it's irrelevant <laughs> yeah it's entirely irrelevant i don't think there's anything right now that i would say deserves to be restricted and I mean, we've, ta- we've talked about things that could be unrestricted, but I don't think there's anything that is burning to get off so, the list. So you're not you're not worried yet about uh, Treasure Cruise or Dig Through Time? No, no. Yeah, I'm not either. 
No, not not. I mean, those and those are cards. Your deck, you're not worried about Notion Thief or Mox Opal. No, um, <laughs> the, 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 all of these things are reliant on strategies that take time to put into place. Like you can easily just nullify Delve with Graveyard Hate, and Graveyard Hate is readily available. You can nullify Mox Opals with Artifact Hate. Artifact Hate is readily available. It's not like these things are going to be warping the format on their own. They're utilizing strategies that can be fought. Right. I think that's sort of how I feel about vintage in general is that all of the answers are there. It's just like people have to be able to have to be willing to play them and not stick to their tried and true deck that should win because it won three years ago. Mm -hmm. Be more conscious of what they're going to be playing against. I mean, if you're going to play against a lot of Delve, all right, you either want to play Delve or you want to beat Delve. So you can, you know, have main deck ley lines and play two card Monty like not too trained to the Mm -hmm. One of the more recent Columbus tournaments, or sure. you know, play Esper and have rest in peace main deck. I mean, it's it's not impossible. <laughs> yeah, I don't necessarily have a prediction for 2015, but I think it's more of a like a hope that uh, the Vintage Super League continues because that was awesome for the format, like getting the exposure out there, I, these people to play the format, and uh, man, that was so good. Yeah, yeah, I agree for for sure. I think that really 2015. I mean, I think we had the the opening rounds of what MTGO can do for Vintage. Right. And I'm really interested to see where this goes in 2015. Because honestly, for me, it, it seems like Vintage on MTGO has caught on better than I expected it would. Right. I don't know that it's there yet, because people that I talk to are like, hey, I'm waiting this queue for this eight-person event to fire for the last 90 minutes. And it's like, it's not attractive to people like us who would play all the time, but it's, it, I'm not going to spend three, four, five hundred dollars to buy online cards and play on this terrible client that doesn't work on my Apple. So what's, there uh, is that, you know, what's the but, but some people are making time. the, de some people are making the decision to do that. And I think that as time goes on, more people are being lured in. So. Yeah. Like I said, I think that we're seeing the beginnings of it now, and I'm interested to see where it can go. Well, I think we've gotten into sort of a vintage resurgence because we have seen a lot of a lot of people are being exposed to it either through MTGO or the Vintage Super League or just and it's a snowball effect. There's more talk about it. There's more visual vintage. Like I think people are getting more into it and deciding that they need to explore it. It's like, all right, I'm already playing these other formats. You know, what else is there for me? Oh, hey, Vintage, this has some cool cards. Let's see what this does. You yeah. Know? And yeah. They're, they're looking into it a little bit more deeply than they would have when they – all they knew about it was that it was a turn one kill format that was super expensive and only elitist play. All of this publicity is sort of dispelling some of those over right. overarching myths right. that, that we need to get past in order to grow Vintage as a format. Right. And I know that I do editing for Mana Deprived and I do writing for Legit, obviously, and both of the editors there, I mean, both, both of the people in charge of the writing there, have been asking if I know anyone who is interested in writing. So if you're interested in writing about vintage, get in touch with me and I will put you in touch with them and we will <laughs> we can hook you up. It's a format that a lot of people are interested in getting information about right now. I, like I said, because a lot of people are learning about it and you can start with basic ideas. You don't need to be a great player to have something to say about the about vintage. So Jeff and the poop deck corner, for example. I'm going to get Just there. We're, we're going to, uh, the thing is I'm, I, I'm really worried because if that's successful, I'm not sure I can churn out a poop deck on a 
routine basis. Jeff, you you have an entire team. That's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, th I don't think this will be hard at all. <laughs> all right, all right. Well, I, and, and like I said, Hazard or uh, I know Hazard was interested in that idea too. So like you guys could trade off probably. I just need to finish commenting on all the fallen empires, and then then we can see. All right. And, yeah. So like I said, I, I think we're very interested in where vintage is going in 2015, and I I hope that the positivity that I saw in 2014 continues because there's been a, a lot of good growth around the format, especially attitude and opinion wise. Even if that hasn't yet translated into a massive influx of players, I think it's just good that people are noticing and talking about the format. Well, it's hard. I mean, uh, you know, look at the cost of a black lotus from January right. until now. Mm-hmm. I mean, what's... Let's not even talk about that, because yeah. honestly, that's just kind of scary. Right, and Paul brought this up too, that with proxies, like you don't need to be afraid of that high buy-in cost. So you, you can get into these local events and work your way up the ladder, and you wouldn't necessarily be able to you know, jump right into Vintage Champs or play at Gen Con, but I mean, there's still plenty of large events, especially on the East Coast. We're getting larger events, uh, more larger events in the Midwest and on the West Coast, like I, it's a it's a grassroots effort, and you kind of just have to get out there. That's my encouraging statement to everyone. Go out and play. Yeah, you never know. You may show up to a proxy tournament, and someone like Nat Mose will be there, and they have a deck box full of, like, seven proxy decks that you can play. Yep, and I'll probably lose to you because I'm not actually all that good at vintage. Uh, he's being humble. No. Yeah, you, you just won a tournament. Like, I can say that, and it definitely holds some weight, but you can't say that. Yeah, that's the problem with being on the stream is like everyone gets the idea that I'm actually good. So, but I should say that playing more often makes you better at vintage. That's certainly true. I've I've certainly got a lot worse since I stopped playing regularly. Yeah, he says after having just top four to tournament. Whatever. Well, Jerry and I were talking about how um, I'm much different player than I was back when I was playing Dredge at the Hero Zone. And I'm not sure. sure if that's because I've become less serious as a player or because I just play a lot less, because I think both of those are true. How different are you? Did he point to specific? He said that I was just a lot more serious and focused on play. Oh, interesting. That I didn't seem like I was having as good of a time. Oh, were you having a good time? I think um, I think I was probably a lot more focused on winning than having a good time. And I think in order to really enjoy the format, I had to get over not winning. Well, I, I think because I got really used to winning. Yeah. I, I well, think that there was really... there was only one tournament at the Hero Zone that I didn't top eight at for like yeah. a couple of years. Well, I think that's interesting because I remember like playing at the Invitational, for example, it was like. As I realized that I was in contention for the elimination rounds, it was like I was much more focused on the game and much more serious. It's like, you know, with in the first round against Nam, I was getting the crap kicked out of me by shops. <laughs> but it was like, you know, he and I were joking and, you know, talking about our cards and, oh, no, you're going to kill me now. So, so you know, I, I think that does go along with winning and finally realizing that you're in a position to, you know, do well. Yeah, ultimately, yeah, I, I would when say... everything goes south for me, because I, I'll be playing, and I'll be like, yeah, this is pretty fun, and then I'm like, oh, wow, like, I'm actually doing pretty well. Maybe right. I should uh, try and play really good, and then I don't play really good. <laughs> yeah, because you overthink things. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think I have the most fun when I'm losing, honestly, because it's way easier to be boisterous and have a good right. time when you're not. 
I mean, when you're winning and you're exaggerated about it, that's also known as being a dick. Oh. Um, or, or at least it's easy to come off that way. But when you're losing, I mean, you can just be exaggerated and it's, it's sort of all fun and games. <laughs> so right. I have a good time when I'm losing, is what I'm saying. <laughs> well, just remember that for the next time. happened again you've wasted another perfectly good hour listening to serious vintage i'm jeff mose i'm matt mose i'm josh chapel and i'm paul kim and we hope you'll join us next time for more serious vintage take a little trip take a little trip take a little trip